abortion. Ooh, did you get the chill? I love how you just like started with that. Yeah. Hearing that word. Uh, lots of feelings there, folks. Okay. But literally, really, listen, by all pollster accounts, that topic, the topic of abortion, seems to be one of, if not the most hot button issues for the upcoming midterm elections here in 2022. Would you agree with that? Right? So that's why, regardless of where you stand on the issue, we thought it was so important for us to dive into why and when abortion became so political. Because yes, we can point to a specific political strategy that linked the pro-life movement with the Republican Party and how that is playing out today in very extreme ways. Get ready to connect the dots. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. So I didn't really want to start here, but I guess we're going to anyway, because this has been in the news so often that I don't think we can't. We have to start here. But first, according to our favorite, Cox Richardson, the scandal involving Herschel Walker, the staunchly, and if you're not familiar with him, the staunchly anti-abortion Georgia candidate for Senate, who appears to have paid for an ex-girlfriend's abortion in 2009, has, of course, gotten worse. To recap, after, not only after he gave a speech in which he apologized to everyone for sort of having this breakdown of father figures in Black American culture. And after he claimed he did not know the woman who said he paid for an abortion, the woman said she was the mother of one of his other newly acknowledged children. So, of course, he knows her. And P.S., he's got a number of these newly acknowledged children for whom he has not been present in their lives. Despite having made this big public statement about the importance of a father figure in Black culture. So... Just five years ago, Representative Tim Murphy, who is was the Republican um, representative from Pennsylvania, who also belonged to the Republican Pro-Life Caucus, resigned just hours after the story broke that he pressured a woman with whom he was having an affair to get an abortion. That's a very different outcome than now, where we have Republicans rallying around Walker, with former NRA spokesperson and former Breitbart writer Dana Loesch saying, fairly famously now if you're on Twitter at all, I don't care if Herschel Walker paid to abort endangered baby eagles. I want control of the Senate. I am shaking my head here right now because my, how quickly the party has gotten rid of that thing called integrity and also highly skeptical about the positioning of Herschel Walker against Raphael Warnock in two black men in this particular race, right? You think there's a strategy there? Winning at all costs. Blah. Yeah. So in the Philadelphia Inquirer, you're not alone there, Sarah, because columnist Will Bunch pointed out the Republican leaders have not condemned Walker for his hypocrisy on abortion, his lies about it, and about the many other things he has lied about during the campaign or the many allegations of domestic violence that women have made about him. Instead, Walker's campaign says it has raised a half a million dollars since the news broke, while Walker recorded an ad claiming he has been, quote, saved by grace. Bunch, in this column, noted what many observers have already called out, that the Republicans no longer care about anything but winning. 
And he went on. They insist on winning so they can put their vision of Christian domination into effect. Quote, the so-called family values of American fundamentalists turn out to be mere window dressing that can be tossed for the movement's true aim, authoritarianism, he wrote. Sounds a lot like your questioning of integrity there, right? And authoritarianism is a really big word, but I think it's really applicable here because Bunch linked this to a piece that scholar of fascism Bren Tannehill published in the New Republic about a week ago, noting that religion in the United States is declining among younger folks and that older evangelicals are increasingly concerned that they are losing power at the same time that their Christianity has become a political identity. And on this point, Tannehill wrote, the real danger of this widening schism lies in this creating the conditions for a future that looks more like present day Russia or Iran. Pause and think for a second, right? That is authoritarianism. We supposedly live in a democracy, but that's where we're going. And so in listening to what you just said, I'm pretty terrified about where we're going to go next year. But I guess, I mean, you've taught me, if nothing else, over the last three and a half years we've been doing this show, we need to look back at history to understand why and how we got to this point today so we can know where on earth we need to go next. And when you said that Christianity has become a political identity, I immediately also thought about our stated goal in this country, our supposed stated goal in this country of the separation of church and state, which we have seen multiple instances of lately where it's not happening anymore. And if you have any questions about that, just contact us. But imagine prayer and football fields, sidelines of public schools, that sort of stuff. So tell me, like, how did we get here? Can you take us back? Yes. And so we're actually going to go way, way back to the start of the last century. And this is according to the Washington Post. But when states began to outlaw abortion in the 19th century, it was not a political, let alone a partisan issue. So even as state after state sought to really criminalize the procedure, it didn't really, you know, rise to the level of political attention around it or debate, largely because by criminalizing abortion, it really sort of solidified the goals shared by both parties in an era where really politics was all about what white men wanted and voted for. You know, criminalizing abortion was, in part, a way for the rising male professional medical field to consolidate women's reproductive care under their control, right? And away from unlicensed female, and at times black, midwives. So these legal changes were also kind of, you know, tied together with these sort of xenophobic and nativist concerns that inferior, in heavy air quotes, new immigrant groups, many of them Catholic, and therefore already having a fair amount of children, were reproducing at a much faster rate than white Anglo-Saxon Protestant women. So outlawing abortion at that time was seen as a way to increase the number of births of, again, in heavy air quotes here, more desirable children. I can't even. (laughs) It's kind of like some of the arguments that we've heard recently, right? Like some of the support behind Dobbs is designed to force white women to have more white babies, which just kind of sounds gross coming out of my mouth to actually say something like that. Right? I know. A little too dystopian in a terrible, terrible way. And so 
going back, you know, we're back in the 1800s. And to put this in context, until 1875, which was, you know, 25 er years earlier than 1900, if you're doing math, nobody knew how babies were actually even made at that point, right? So by 1900, like you're regulating an industry that no one knows really anything about. The only way to get an abortion on American soil was to somehow prove that the expecting mother's life was at risk. And that's the only, sorry, I should asterisk that because that's the only legal way that you could have gotten abortion at that point. But then we had this total economic collapse, also known as the Great Depression, which also sparked unprecedented rates of illegal abortion because people would still get pregnant, but could not afford to feed more children. But at the same time, so people are getting pregnant, cannot afford to feed their children, wanting to get more abortions, getting legal abortions, and this increased number of illegal abortions really pissed Catholics off. So leaders of the church in America had long led the opposition to legal abortion, you know, because they were following guidance from Rome, and so they considered it to be murder. In response to doctors increasingly performing illegal abortions for these patients who didn't have any money during the Depression, the National Federation of the Catholic Physicians Guild issued, you know, basically a letter condemning abortion in 1937. But that's not, even despite that, that's not to say that abortion immediately became like front and center and a big political issue. In fact, abortion remained on the fringes of political debate until the late 1960s. So we're talking, you know, 50 some odd years ago. Male reformers from medicine, from law, and some progressive religious communities by that point had recently begun championing legal abortion to little effect. But the abortion reform movement to give women more access to it was really made possible not by what those men were saying, but by a larger cultural shift in Americans' ideas about reproduction and abortion. And it's tied to something particularly terrible. So here's the awful reason why. In the 1960s, Americans witnessed the heartbreak of infant death and extreme fetal deformity on like a large scale, right? The Little Maid, a sleeping pill, caused thousands of birth defects in Europe and the United States. And later, an outbreak of German measles produced thousands of stillbirths and cases of babies born with major abnormalities. So suddenly in the American media, you have these images of white middle-class women with deformed infants. And these images sort of captured the imaginations and the parental fears of many Americans. So in the late 1960s, you've got sort of this grassroots growing feminist movement that began to argue that women could not be full citizens until they could control reproduction, which kind of seems like a no brainer, but okay, you know, and these groups staged political events like abortion speakouts, which featured women giving firsthand accounts of illegal abortions. Other feminist groups, such as the National Organization for Women, also known as NOW, became well versed in more traditional forms of power politics. And they helped move 17 states to legalize abortion under certain conditions, even before Roe did so at the federal level in 1973. Wow, local activism, go. Right? And so I think it's also important to note that even as late as 50 years ago, many Republicans initially supported legalized abortions. That's Republicans supporting legalized abortions. Letting women and not lawmakers decide whether to give birth was in line with Republicans' ideological affinity for individual rights and small government, right? If you don't want big government telling you what to do, right, you want to let individuals decide. And so that that worked. 
right, from a theoretical standpoint. Republicans were also more likely to prefer abortion over subsequent years of taxpayer-funded support for poor women and children. Also makes sense. Theoretically, right? So we had at that time a moderate Republican governor, Nelson Rockefeller of, yes, those Rockefellers of New York, and he was a main force behind his state's abortion reform law in 1970, just as Ronald Reagan, a leader of the party's rising conservative faction, signed a similar bill in 1967 as governor of California. Did you say Ronald Reagan? Yes, I said Ronald Reagan, but I also note that I said as the governor of California. Things are about to change. Ah, how? How can things that are so supposedly fundamental change so quickly? Okay, because then, you know, you were just talking about the 1970s, the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973, right, which legalized abortion on a federal level in the United States, which in my head is like, yay, it's a huge party, but apparently not so much for everyone out there. So did that change everything? Did it change nothing? Did it change some things? What happened? Right. So great question. And I think it's kind of all of the above, which I know is the most frustrating answer possible, right? (laughs) That's like the least lawyerly answer you could give. Thanks. No, it's the most lawyerly (laughs) answer, actually. It's like, uh, it depends sort of answer. You know, so let me back up for a second, because if you remember when I was talking about some states legalizing abortion, you know, in the midst of that, right, the modern anti-abortion political movement was born. And that was really small groups of Catholic doctors, nurses, lawyers, and housewives who joined together to oppose, you know, sort of this liberalization of abortion. In 1967, for example, the National Council of Catholic Bishops aided their campaigns with support money and the formation of the National Right to Life Committee. Early Catholic activists were often joined by a handful of non-Catholics, too, so usually Protestants, Mormons, or Orthodox Christians. They also got smarter about their marketing and branding because supporters of abortion reform argued that right-to-life forces were attempting to push Catholic values on a diverse American populace. And because of that, you know, many anti-abortion groups were like, you know what? We're not Catholic. We're non-denominational. So really to, to, you know, take that argument off the table. So now, you know, at that point, most of those early groups failed to stop changes in their state abortion laws, but they did have some successes in the early 1970s. Remember, that's right around when Roe was codified, which suggests that not every state at that point was ready for abortion reform. Okay. So in the end, this is where the organized strategy to overturn Roe starts, because once Roe passes, this group gets increasingly more organized and looks for more ways to appeal to the average citizen. And catching on. Yes. And you've got to look at the Republican Party. So I said Republicans initially supported legalized abortion, but the left and right sides of the Republican Party did not agree for long. (laughs) Back when they used to have a left and a right side. Right. Back before there were different sides. Right. So not 2022. During the 1970s, harnessing opposition to legal abortion enabled conservative Republicans, so that's the anti-abortion faction, right, to capture control of their party away from moderates like Rockefeller, who, remember, governor of New York. Yeah. They especially relied on devout Catholics and evangelical voters who tended to see abortion in stark moral and religious terms, right? So it is murder and pure evil, in their opinion. And thus, this group could really be counted on to get to the polls to support the conservative Republicans who vowed to make abortion criminal again, regardless of whether they agreed with them on other issues. So it was this. It was like one issue 
voting. During his 1972 presidential campaign, Republican Richard Nixon began sort of staking out anti-abortion positions as part of a strategy to appeal to Catholic voters and other social conservatives. After Nixon won the election and a majority of Catholic votes, Republican strategists saw that and were like, you know what? That worked. So we're going to try this in Congress, too, as a way of, you know, to forge coalitions with evangelical groups around opposition to abortion. But remember there's still a split in the Republican Party. Because while Republican President Gerald Ford opposed Roe v. Wade, First Lady at the time, Betty Ford, was an abortion rights supporter. And if you recall, Ford's vice president, Nelson Rockefeller, yep, that same guy, presided over the repeal of abortion restrictions in New York. And so there's a great book out there called Before Roe v. Wade, written by Linda Greenhouse and Reva B. Siegel, who talk about this. Because in Congress, Republicans had been voting against abortion at about the same rates as Democrats, indicating that that wasn't a partisan issue at that time. The shift to opposing abortion rights was part of a larger effort to paint the Republican Party as pro-family in a way that would really help them win over socially conservative voters. And that's according to Greenhouse and Siegel. Okay. So we have a highly Catholic opposition that's getting more organized and part of the Republican Party who are gaining this activist power and support, all of whom are now coming out against abortion. So what's happening with the Democrats at this point? So it's no surprise, right, that the further the GOP shifts to the right, right, Democrats did the opposite. And you have to rewind it a little bit, right? Because internal reforms beginning in the late 1960s loosened, you know, sort of that old line New Deal Democrat power, right, that had really been consolidated and exercised within the party. So those decentralization measures aim to give previously underrepresented groups like women a greater stake in party governance. So groups like now, right, really listened and moved the Democratic Party to back legal abortion, other tenets of what, you know, they really consider to be modern feminism. But that's not to say that this was an easy line for everybody to follow, right? Those changes presented a particular challenge for Catholic Democrats, as well as, you know, evangelicals like Jimmy Carter, who sometimes had to square their own personal opposition to legal abortion with new party priorities. This name might sound familiar. Delaware's Democratic senator, Joe Biden, right, who is a Catholic who was first elected in 1972 and initially opposed Roe, was among those who learned to say that although he was personally opposed to abortion, he respected the Supreme Court rulings. And I think that's really important to note that respecting the rule of law is something that we don't often see especially when we're heading into the midterms, right? So that is a really key point here. Totally. And so I hear you, like we're in the, the 70s and we're, the parties are aligning themselves. What was happening? Like were the average citizens also taking these, you know, hardline stances pro or anti-abortion like some of the party leaders? Yeah. So, you know, we've been talking sort of at the party level, right? So that's a great question because that's a really interesting thing. Like they weren't. Voters didn't see abortion, right, along partisan lines. The General Social Survey opinion poll found in 1977 that 39% of Republicans and 35% of Democrats said abortion should be allowed for any reason. Pretty similar. That's basically, right, the same numbers. And in the 1970s, even major churches didn't see it as a, the defining issue, right? Well, I mean, while the Catholic Church, right, as we know, opposed abortion, the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest evangelical denomination, was on record saying abortion should be allowed 
in many circumstances. And I think, you know, when we think about Southern Baptist today, we don't necessarily think that to be the case. So, for example, in 1968, a symposium sponsored by the Christian Medical Society and Christianity Today, which is not shockingly the flagship magazine of evangelicalism, refused to characterize abortion as sinful, citing instead individual health, family welfare and social responsibility as justifications for ending a pregnancy. Ah, imagine that world. That is so refreshing. God, I know those words, right? And in 1971, delegates to the Southern Baptist Convention passed a resolution encouraging Southern Baptists to work for legislation that will allow the possibility of abortion under such conditions as rape, incest, clear evidence of severe fetal deformity, and carefully ascertained evidence of the likelihood of damage to the emotional, mental, and physical health of the mother. You know, the convention, which was, you know, really not all about liberal values, right, reaffirmed that position in 1974, one year after Roe, and again in 1976. I'm still just really surprised. And also what I love is that emotional and mental health were mentioned along with the physical health of the mother, because I think we have come to interpret health so tightly now, like unless you are proven to be about to die in so many states in this country today, right now, you are not allowed to have a life-saving procedure. Yeah. If you're looking to get started podcasting, check out Libsyn.com and use the promo code DWWPOD to get up to two months of free podcasting service. Libsyn offers incredible customer service and support, real-time podcast analytics to see how your show's doing, an embeddable podcast player, and all the free podcast guides and tutorials you'll need to get started podcasting today. Go to libsyn.com and use promo code DWWPOD. Okay, so get this quote then. When the Roe decision was handed down, W.A. Criswell, who was a Southern Baptist Convention former president and pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, who was also one of the most famous fundamentalists of the 20th century, he was pleased. He said, I have always felt that it was only after a child was born and had a life separate from its mother that it became an individual person, he said. And it has always, therefore, seemed to me that what is best for the mother and for the future should be allowed. I think I just I'm like trying to control this fanatical, like weird, uncomfortable laughter I have about this because I can we read that in and just pause? That is so radically different than what I would expect to hear from someone in their position today. Right. And I think it's also counter to what we've been taught about who supports abortion and who is against it, right? Because I didn't know this, right, until I was really digging into this material. Because sure, a few evangelical voices mildly criticized the ruling, but the overwhelming response was silence or even approval. Baptists, in particular, applauded the decision as an appropriate articulation of the division between church and state between personal morality and state regulation of individual behavior. You know, according to W. Barry Garrett of Baptist Press, he wrote, religious liberty, human equality, and justice are advanced by the Supreme Court decision. I'm still, I get, my neck is going to hurt. Like, (laughs) I keep shaking my head. Just need to make that head exploding emoji thing. Oh, folks, are your, is your head exploding too? Like, this is such a far cry from where we are today, clearly. And it makes me think, you know, if you you hear this if you oh, oh my gosh i'm really <laughs> articulate right now okay how about this how about we go to what on earth changed and when because what the heck 
happened between the 70s, which, by the way, is like within our lifetimes, right, has changed so dramatically in how we position the case for women having control of their own reproductive health care. So we've got the politicians who now conservative Republicans believe that this is a coalition building issue, right? But everyone else is kind of like, not not particularly politically tied, right? Yeah, it's okay. Hey, it's your business. And it's a separation of church and state. Like, go ahead. Right. It's your body. You make your choice. Right? Okay. So, but then we've got activists like Phyllis Shafley. Okay, so she worked to blend like longtime core conservative goals with opposition to social issues like abortion and really was like, you know what? Abortion is a threat to traditional values. And she went around and enlisted evangelical churches, which had shown a new interest in politics following a series of court rulings that limited prayer in public settings. Oh, so suddenly they're getting limited and needed to fight back to expand their influence again. Yeah. And she used that to her advantage because these activist groups portrayed abortion as a threat to the family structure, along with broader social developments at the time, like gay rights, rising divorce rates and women working outside of the home. You know, Mary Ziegler, who's a legal historian at the University of California, Davis, suggests that for pastors and parishioners, abortion became a proxy issue for concerns about a liberalizing society. You know, according to her, for many evangelicals, this was more about family and women and sex. So activists also argued that lowering taxes, for example, could curb abortion rates by reducing revenue for Medicare funded abortions for poor women. I'm just watching you shake your head. I'm telling you, it's going to hurt because you're now hurting a wide swath of people, swath, swath of people to like get one little bit and like disadvantage people. And it just makes me angry. Well, and the thing is, they were successful because such arguments soon produced a successful effort to end Medicaid funding for abortion in 1976 through passage of the Hyde Amendment, you know, and Let's be clear on who made this happen, right? This was really made possible by the efforts of homemakers. And we're using this term homemakers because that's what this article had used. But to be clear, we're largely talking about white women who did not work outside of the home at that point. What's our show's name again? Unclear on that. So, But these women subscribed to Shafley's newsletter and used their more flexible schedules sort of in the time period where kids were at school for example, to lobby Congress. I'm just going to take that as a sign that more people who have time today can also equally use their time to make a difference in larger society. So the thing about what Phyllis Shafley and her sort of army now of activists were doing is they also got churches to listen. So remember how the Southern Baptist Convention was all, you know, like thumbs up to row or at least not like thumbs down in 1980 the Southern Baptist Convention passed a resolution opposing abortion and reversed its earlier position. And I've also got another word for you, Reagan. He's back. Of course he is. Okay, so what's the deal with Reagan? Because I thought he was in support of abortion back when he was governor of California in 1967. That is true. He was. But 
when you add a desire for power and racism together, that's a hell of a drug, friends. <laughs> I'm just going to keep going with my flair today. I'm like, <laughs> oh, the link between abortion and racism. Here we go. Right. Although here he's only the start of the link between abortion and sort of the Republican leadership, which I mean, if you're really talking about the start start, that was kind of Nixon, right? But Reagan brings it forward because in 1976, when Reagan ran for president the first time, he ran on an openly anti-abortion campaign. It should be noted, though, that in the 1976 election, because Reagan wasn't the Republican candidate, right, in the end, the first presidential race since opposition to abortion emerged as an important political force, both Carter and President Ford opposed a constitutional amendment to ban abortions. Support of such an amendment was at that time really the political test for anti-abortionists, because they were like, if you're with us, right, you want that constitutional amendment. But they couldn't even affiliate themselves with one particular party or one particular candidate during this election because no one bought into it. Well, and I find that interesting. You mentioned how difficult that would have been for Jimmy Carter, the evangelical person, to support abortion. But he couldn't go so far as to ban abortions in the Constitution. So, like, he was still thinking about it. Yeah, right. Okay, but by 1980, when Reagan actually won the presidency, he was campaigning on, among other things, a platform of appointing anti-abortion judges. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. Does that sound familiar to anybody else? Because, okay, wait, it's a direct quote from Trump. The justices that I'm going to appoint, and I've named 20 of them, the justices that I'm going to appoint will be pro-life. They will have a conservative bent. End quote. That's Trump. Yeah, I know. Do we see echoes? Mm. History repeats itself. This is why you told me I must pay attention. Yes. (laughs) So in the 1980 presidential election, right, the incumbent President Carter remained opposed to that constitutional amendment to ban abortions. Guess who didn't, though? Reagan strongly supported the idea and even backed proposals to force a constitutional convention if Congress refused to propose such an amendment. In his campaign speeches, Reagan promised to use the power and prestige of the presidency to push for an amendment if he is elected. Hearing that, anti-abortion activists shifted their political efforts from predominantly, like, can't vote for this guy, to a heavily pro-Reagan campaign. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's a huge difference from 1967 Reagan to 1980 Reagan, at least in what he's saying. He did like a full 180 on what he was publicly saying and affirming about abortion. And to be clear, I'm all for changing your opinion or stance if you learn something new, like something materially new that changes your mind, right? Like, I mean, just like you and me, like you learn better, you know better, you do better. But on this one, I don't think that that's what's happened, right? That flip makes me think that it wasn't just about abortion, but about something else. And I'm wondering if what you said when I got all like slightly maniacal sounding at the time, (laughs) the mention earlier, the racism word, am I right? Is this what we're talking about here? Because we did a whole talk on Reagan just a few episodes ago. Right. Which was, I think is important to listen to if you really want to get the backstory of Reagan. But, you know, it's this concept of the religious right now that's really emerging. And, you know, which is really this group in the Republican Party who now includes evangelicals, churches, and other faith-based groups. And they were united around a Supreme Court decision. Remember, When Phyllis Schafly got through to the evangelical churches, it was because of separation, you know, of prayer, right, and separation of church and state decisions. But this Supreme Court decision wasn't about that, and it wasn't about Roe. It was about segregation. So 
You were right. Let's back up a bit. So according to Politico, in May of 1969, a group of African-American parents in Holmes County, Mississippi, sued the Treasury Department to prevent three new whites-only K-12 through private academies from securing full tax-exempt status, arguing that their discriminatory policies prevented them from being considered charitable institutions. These schools not surprisingly, had been founded in the mid-1960s in response to the desegregation of public schools set in motion by the Brown v. Board of Education decision in 1954. So in 1969, the first year of desegregation, the number of white students, are you ready for this, enrolled in public schools in Holmes County, that's in Mississippi again, dropped from 771 students to 28. The following year, that number fell to zero. Okay, another brain explosion. Right. So this is a Supreme Court case in Green versus Kennedy. And Kennedy was secretary of the Treasury at that time. So he's named in the lawsuit, which was decided in January of 1970. The plaintiffs who were the parents, right, won a preliminary injunction, which basically denied the segregation academies tax exempt status until further review. In the meantime, though, the government was trying to figure out its position on these schools, right? Because you've got clearly segregated schools, right, asking for charitable institution status. So later that year, President Nixon ordered the IRS to enact a new policy denying tax exemptions to all segregated schools in the United States. So under the provisions of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which really outlawed racial segregation and discrimination, discriminatory schools, therefore, were not by definition charitable educational organizations, and therefore, they had no claim to tax-exempt status. And similarly, donations to such organizations would no longer qualify as tax-deductible contributions. So, I mean, I'm absorbing. These places, specifically schools that discriminate, can no longer be considered charitable. So places donating to them can't make their contributions tax-deductible, dot, dot, dot. This would piss off a whole bunch of white people, right? Right. And not just places donating them, but individuals who are, yeah, 100%. So on June 30th, 1971, the United States District Court for the District of Columbia issued its ruling in this case. And this case was now renamed. It's Green versus Connolly because Connolly was the new Secretary of the Treasury. So the decision upheld that new IRS policy and stated under the Internal Revenue Code, properly construed, racially discriminatory private schools are not entitled to the federal tax exemption provided for charitable educational institutions, and persons making gifts to such schools are not entitled to the deductions provided in case of gifts to charitable educational institutions. So hearing that, Paul Weyrich, who's the late religious conservative political activist and co-founder of the Heritage Foundation, saw his opening. Where do I get the feeling I'm not going to like what he did? Yeah, well, I wonder why. So in the decades following World War II, evangelicals, and in particular, white evangelicals in the North, had drifted towards the Republican Party. You know, they had sort of gone that way because they were anxious about the Cold War. They were suspicious of Catholicism. And on top of that, well-known evangelist Billy Graham had a very public friendship with Dwight Eisenhower and Richard Nixon. So despite all of this, though, evangelicals had largely stayed out of the political arena, at least in any organized way. Weirich, though, however, reasoned that if he could change that, if he could get them motivated to be more involved, their large numbers would constitute a formidable voting block, one that he could easily just sort of push into supporting conservative causes. 
So in the mid-1970s, he wrote, the new political philosophy must be defined by us, or conservatives, in moral terms, packaged in non-religious language and propagated throughout the country by our new coalition. When political power is achieved, the moral majority will have the opportunity to recreate this great nation. Does that sound familiar? MAGA, for example? Right. So Wyrick believed that the political possibilities of such a coalition were unlimited. He also wrote, the leadership, moral philosophy, and workable vehicle are at hand just waiting to be blended and activated. If the moral majority acts, results could well exceed our wildest dreams. I just hate the use of the word moral majority. Can we just... Cringy. Me too. Okay, so... But here's the thing, this hypothetical, like I'm going to use it again, moral majority needed a catalyst and something, right, that they could hold on to to rally behind. For nearly two decades, Weirich, by his own account, had been trying out different issues, hoping one might spark that evangelical, like sort of coalition building, like he tried pornography, tried prayer in schools, he tried the proposed Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution, even abortion. And he recalled, like, looking back on, you know, this in 1990, he said, I was trying to get these people interested in those issues, and I utterly failed. However, the Green versus Connolly ruling provided a necessary first step. I'm getting it now, how it all ties together. I'm so disappointed. <laughs> Aren't you, though? Aren't we all? Like, oh, you're freaking right. <laughs> History. Okay. Yeah, because that decision captured the attention of evangelical leaders, especially as the IRS began sending questionnaires to church-related, quote, segregation academies, including Baptist pastor, also a televangelist, also conservative activist Jerry Farwell's own Lynchburg Christian School, inquiring about their racial policies. Farwell was furious. And he famously complained, in some states, it's easier to open a massage parlor than a Christian school. And I think by Christian, he means segregated, but sure, we'll take it, right? When Bob Jones University, a fundamentalist college in Greenville, South Carolina, lost its tax exemption due to its failure to integrate in early 1976, that was it for many evangelical leaders. As Elmer L. Rumminger, longtime administrator at Bob Jones University, stated in an interview, the IRS actions against his school alerted the Christian school community about what could happen with government interference in the affairs of evangelical institutions. That was really the major issue that got us all involved. So it wasn't about abortion at all at that point. It was about being able to have tax-exempt schools and exempt status that were evangelical in nature that were all white and could stay all white. Awesome. <laughs> okay, so go back to Reagan because he's uh, the... I can't even. Let's go back to Reagan. Yeah, so to go back to Reagan, right, we have to go back to that grassroots strategy because Weirich saw that he had the beginning of a conservative political movement, which is why several years into President Carter's term, so now he's in sort of the late 70s, right? He and other leaders of this sort of growing religious right blamed Carter for the IRS actions against segregated schools. Does that sound familiar too? Even though the policy was mandated by Nixon and Bob Jones University had lost its tax exemption a year and a day before Carter was inaugurated as president. So totally more lies, misdirection and trickery trying to blame a different political party and blame somebody completely unrelated for something that happened through history. Okay. Yeah. But you know what? Falwell, Wyrick and others were, you know sort of undeterred by whether things were facts or not, right? So in their determination to elect a conservative 
You know, they were willing to do anything to deny a Democrat. Again, does this sound familiar? Even a fellow evangelical like Carter, another term in the White House. But these two, having tapped into like this real anger of evangelical leaders, were also smart enough to realize and recognize that organizing grassroots evangelicals to defend racial discrimination was going to be a challenge, right? It had worked to rally the issue, the leaders, right, on this issue, but they needed a different issue if they wanted to mobilize evangelical voters on a large scale. So let's link it back to abortion. By the late 1970s, many Americans, not just Roman Catholics, were beginning to feel uneasy about the spike in legal abortions following the 1973 Roe decision. The 1978 midterm elections demonstrated to Weyrich and others that abortion might motivate conservatives where it hadn't in the past. Because that year in Minnesota, pro-life Republicans captured both Senate seats, one for the unexpired term of Hubert Humphrey, as well as the governor's mansion. So think about the control in Minnesota, right, which is not a, a state that you're thinking is particularly conservative to begin with. In Iowa, Senator Dick Clark, the Democratic incumbent, was thought to be a shoo-in. Every poll heading into the election showed him ahead by at least 10 percentage points. On the final weekend of the campaign, though, pro-life activists, primarily Roman Catholics, left leaflets in church parking lots, as they did in Minnesota. And on Election Day, Clark lost to his Republican pro-life challenger. And yet another reason why, like, midterm elections are so important. It's not just the federal ones. It's your local elections, too. Right. Because it was these midterms in 1978 that represented this, like, key step towards getting everyday evangelical voters on board with abortion as like this key issue. In a letter to fellow conservative Daniel B. Hales, Weyrich characterized the triumph of pro-life candidates as a true cause for celebration. And Robert Billings, you know, kind of a co-conspirator there, predicted that opposition to abortion would pull together many of our fringe Christian friends. At this point, Roe v. Wade had been law for more than five years, but just that. So, Weyrich, Farwell, and leaders of the emerging religious right enlisted an unlikely ally in their quest to really push abortion forward as a political issue. So they found this guy, Francis A. Schaefer, who had a goatee, he was he wore knickers, and he was a theologian who was warning about the eclipse of Christian values and the advance of something he calls secular humanism. Again, does this sound familiar to when we started this podcast? So Schaefer, considered by many the intellectual godfather of the religious right, which conjures up like a whole lot of memes in certain ways, was not known for his political activism. But by the late 1970s, he decided that legalized abortion would lead inevitably to infanticide and euthanasia. And he was eager to sound the alarm. Not sure how he got there, but anyway. So Schaefer teamed with a pediatric surgeon, C. Everett Koop. And <laughs> uh-huh. Who? Who becomes later Reagan's Surgeon General. And put an asterisk there because I found out something that Reagan asked Coop to do that he refused to do on the topic of abortion. So remind me about that. But the two of them teamed up to produce a series of films called Whatever Happened to the Human Race? If you want to talk about provocative titles, right? So in the early months of 1979, Schaffer and Coop, targeting an evangelical audience, toured the country with these films, which depicted like abortion really in graphic very negative terms, most memorably with a scene of plastic baby dolls strewn along the shores of the Dead Sea. 
Yeah, I know. Right. Schaefer and Coop argued that any society that accepted abortion was really held captive to secular humanism and therefore caught in a vortex of moral decay. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. Right. They're drawing some dots. They're connecting some dots, but I'm not sure they're connecting the right dots or even that those dots even exist. But sure. Like, um, when am I supposed to asterisk you and remind you to come back to see Everett Coop? When we get to Reagan. Okay. Okay. So just a little bit more on the background here. So as a result of the, you know, this film tour, evangelicals were slowly coming around on the abortion issue. At the conclusion of the film tour in March of 1979, Schaefer reported that Protestants, especially evangelicals, have, quote, have been so sluggish on this issue of human life and whatever happened to the human race is causing re real waves among church people and government people too. So by 1980, even though Carter had sought both as governor of Georgia and as president to reduce the incidence of abortion, his refusal to seek a constitutional amendment outlawing it was viewed by these politically conservative evangelicals as an unpardonable sin. Never mind the fact that uh, his Republican opponent that year, Reagan, had signed into law as governor of California the most liberal abortion bill in the country. So when Reagan addressed a rally of 10,000 evangelicals at Reunion Arena in Dallas in August 1980, he totally criticized the unconstitutional regulatory agenda directed by the IRS against independent schools, but he made no mention of abortion. Nevertheless, leaders of the religious right hammered away at the issue, persuading many evangelicals to make support for a constitutional amendment outlawing abortion, a litmus test for their votes. And no surprise, by the time the election rolled around in November, Reagan was there as well. And so, OK, first the asterisk or in whatever order you wish to take it, because did Reagan then go from his 1967 self all the way to fully getting on board with this idea of a constitutional amendment? And what did that mean for the Republican Party after him? Too? Yeah, so. First of all, he not only got on board, he was actually freaking leading the parade, right? Because by 1988, Reagan was saying things like this at the March for Life rally. We're told about a woman's right to control her own body, but doesn't the unborn child have a higher right? And that is to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I can't, anyway, I just, I can't with that. But the asterisk is here. Coop was a Surgeon General between 1982 and 1989. So a lot of what he's known for is about when AIDS became like a full-blown epidemic. He's also known for smoking and like doing a lot of stuff about the dangers of smoking. And he was anti-abortion throughout his entire time as Surgeon General. In 1987, Reagan asked him to specifically release a statement saying that abortion was psychologically damaging to women. And he refused to do it. And so for that, I appreciate Coop. But that tells you like how big that machine, that religious right machine was in the White House at that time. Right. And so that's, you know, that's where the link between Republicans, evangelicals and the anti-abortion stance was cemented. You know, and let's not forget, right? Reagan was a racist. Remember, as we've discussed, all of that discussion at the start of this episode as to why this group, the religious right, banded together in the first place? It was about segregation, always first about segregation, not about abortion. And Reagan could get behind that. And, you know, I'm just going to add something here for all those people who say, but why do you always make it about race? Um, I think this is a huge glaring exhibit A here, right? 
Yeah, sure is. Yeah. But it, it escalated from there because this group had to continue to convince a whole host of people that abortion was not only political, but the most important political issue that there is, and that everything came second to opposing segregation. I mean, abortion, right? But in other words, movement leaders didn't want elected officials to just believe that abortion was immoral because believing it was fine. That was one thing. They had Carter who kind of believed that it was fine, but he wasn't willing to act on it. And they wanted them to act on it. So if you fast forward from Reagan making that speech in 1988 to 1996, right? And Pat Buchanan, who was a Republican candidate for president in that election, a direct quote from him during his campaign was, if I'm nominated, I will choose a pro-life Republican running mate. I will appoint justices who will overturn Roe v. Wade. And I will be the most pro-life president in the history of the United States, bar none. In the decades since, Republicans have relied heavily on voters who were staunchly opposed to abortion rights, like white evangelical Christians. But clearly, that wasn't always the case. And that was a very savvy political strategy put together by some people who actually were really pissed off about segregation to begin with and their removal of the tax exempt status. And that leads us to Trump, right, who has said the same things and followed through on his promise regarding justices and Dobbs, right? And here we are just a few weeks before the midterms, which promised to be as potentially game changing as those in 1978. So my neck really hurts from just like shaking it. And I don't really know how I'm feeling, like a mixture of anger mired in a pit of despair, <laughs> you know, somewhere in that whole range of things. But it really <laughs> you're going to I'm going to have to just like do a happy dance or something after we record this episode, folks, because uh, it seriously pisses me off that there was this long game that we didn't see or weren't prepared to adequately interrupt and reverse course on. And so, you know, you mentioned the midterms. What can we do to affect change now? We can't go back and change history. It is what it is. But we don't have much time if we're talking about these midterms that are coming up. Right. We don't have much time. And that urgency should really fuel us. Because remember what I was talking about, sort of the power of grassroots organizing and the grassroots voters, especially in the anti-abortion campaign. That's us on the other side. Like we have to be telling people what we know so that they can make the most informed decisions possible at the polls. We have to tell them also to focus on local elections, not just national, because we know that these issues are not just decided at a congressional level or at a Supreme Court level, right? Abortion is on the ballot in so many states in ways that you might not even expect. And we've got that happening in the progressive Bay Area as well. So even if you're thinking you live somewhere, quote, safe, it may not be true. So what can you do? Encourage people to vote. Get out there and talk to your friends. If you've never done it before, and Sarah and I know this deeply, right? It may feel awkward to start, but commit to contacting at least five friends and make sure they're not only committing to vote, but that they're also remembering that abortion is on the agenda and on the ballot, as well as racism. If you're looking for something else you can do, volunteer to help at the polls if you can, or be a hotline operator, or share this episode on social media with your friends and look to learn more. Because, you know, there is time. We are not out of time yet, but we have to be intentional with our actions because silence still equals consent. Looking away means no change, which means a very large number of American women will have a much harder time getting access to abortion. So to recap, abortion is definitely on the ballot this year, along with racism. They are intricately linked and have been so for centuries in this country. So vote. Tell everyone you know, because we are in this together and our futures are tied together as a result. 
You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list. <laughs>